When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Long before the Red Wall became a part of our everyday political lexicon, David Skelton was talking and writing about the disconnect between post-industrial Britain and the country's political class and helping to pioneer a new form of blue-collar conservatism. Skelton's latest book, The New Snobbery, is partly a polemic about the disdain and condescension voters in these communities have faced, often from so-called progressives, and particularly since the Brexit referendum. But it's also a call to arms to offer a new settlement for communities that have for too long been kept on the margins of Britain's political, economic and cultural life. He began by telling me about his own political journey, which starts with the closure of the steelworks in his hometown of Concert in County Durham. David, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, Your new book, The New Snobbery, was released at the end of June, I believe. And uh, it's a kind of detailed, a sort of diagnosis of the way that um, working class Britons are basically kind of looked down on and excluded from various areas of public life and sort of sneered at, uh, particularly um, because of the Brexit uh, result. Um, just to kick off with, though, can you tell us a bit about your own background? You were born in an industrial town in northeast of England. How did you uh, come to uh, be involved in the Conservative Party in the first place? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, and, and thank you for the opportunity of being being on the podcast. Um, so I, I was born in concert uh, in County Durham. And I think I was four or six when the Steelworks closed. Um, and the Steelworks was almost like the only, um, it was a ninth, it, what, what they call a kind of mono-industrial town. So the Steelworks was by far the biggest employer in town, like 90 plus percent of male, male employment came from the steelworks and, and associated industries and businesses. Um, so I, I grew up with the closure of the steelworks literally overshadowing everything. Um, and for a while, I think Concert had the highest rate of unemployment in Western Europe. Um, and obviously that all happened under a Tory government, but also the, the kind of, repair happened as uh, under a Tory government but also under new labor um and as i was kind of coming of political age it, it just became increasingly clear that labor had for a long time taken places like the northeast for granted uh, and was always harking back to what happened in the 80s 
um, as a reason to vote Labour. Um, so it, kind of in a party system where there's two parties, then if you're dissatisfied at, at the way the, the ruling party in the North East had been treating the North East, then you, you, you think about the alternatives. And I've never been a Thatcherite. Um, I don't think that the Thatcherite economics were particularly beneficial to the Northeast, but I, I also kind of read up about the tradition of Toryism, tradition of Macmillan, tradition of Disraeli, um, the, the much richer pre-Thatcher tradition of Toryism, which, which I thought was directly relevant to what the Northeast needs. So a, 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 a communal unity, a national unity, and, and a state that believes in private enterprise, but also believes that the state should act where necessary. To, to to ensure economic cohesion is possible. So so kind of that that back that back, background of growing up in concert or of seeing what are now called post-industrial towns, what are called left behind behind towns, get neglected, get ignored by frankly all political parties. Uh, and then seeing in the referendum, this this was the first opportunity for for working people in these towns to really flex their political muscles. And they did because they they were told in the referendum, "You have your say; we will implement it." And what happened after the referendum was the the kind of professional middle classes who who have dominated politics for for generations saw that their their preference had been ignored and and didn't respond with, "We promise to implement it, and we will." It didn't uh, didn't respond with, "This is just a legitimate political disagreement." but responded by questioning the legitimacy of the voters who had driven the leave vote to, to make political decisions. They, they accused people of being stupid. They accused people of being undereducated. They accused people of being bigoted. They, they, they basically said that leave voters were driven purely by emotion and remain voters were driven purely by reason, which is utter nonsense. And, and I kind of saw this, this reaction. It became rather poisonous. Uh, particularly on social media, but also in the in the kind of second referendum campaign, where people were saying, "Go and go and you got it wrong first time. Have another chance." And I saw my friends, I saw my family, being impugned I, 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 and 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 be, being being treated with disrespect. And I, I thought it was important to call this out for what it is, which is which is snobbery. It's a new version of snobbery. So it's not a discussion about whether you call something a loo or a toilet or a napkin or a serviette or these kind of weird things that, that, that Nancy Mitford talked about. Uh, for me, it, it's more insidious. One, because it doubts the le legitimacy of people to act as political actors. Two, because I think it really undermines national democratic solidarity. And three, because in a way it's more mainstream and more acceptable. You, you saw on the pages of of learned publications like, like Foreign Policy. You saw The Guardian, The Observer, basically doubting the ability of working class people to be able to use their, their political uh, vote in a legitimate way. And I just think I thought it was important to call this out. Yeah, I mean, how, to what extent do you think um, Brexit shone a light on something that already existed? And to what extent um, do you think it, it it amplified that? I mean, how much of this is just to do with Brexit is, is what I'm asking, really. I think it was always bubbling under. 
And and one of the one of the major themes of the book is the the, the change of the nature of the con the economy. So where, where you used to have working class jobs that were high status, they were secure, they were well paid, they they were highly respected within society. You now have a lot of jobs at the bottom of what people call the hourglass economy, which are lower status, less security, less paid. And and that in combination with, with the fact that many people regard going to university as, as, a, as a code of acceptance in polite, uh, progressive society, as it were, that in itself created a two-tier two society and a two-tier economy in terms of status and respect. But the difference is before the Brexit vote, the kind of graduate professional class, the progressive professional class had generally had things their way. So they didn't really have to complain about it. And, and the Brexit vote was the first time that, that this worldview had been challenged. It had been challenged for, by people who the elite regarded as somehow Ill, illegitimate. So I think it's it's been there for a while, but there was no reason for it to be expressed because for many years, politics and the economy was being run in the interest of, of kind of elite graduates. And, and, and when the Brexit vote turned that on its head, and the changing nature of the Tory party for the 2019 election turned that on its head. I think that was when this went from public under to, to being expressed uh, in, in polite, progressive society. Uh, and we're still seeing it. We saw it around the Hartlepool by-election, for example. Uh, that, it, it took me ages to finish this book because every single day I saw a new example of this snobbery coming up on social media, even coming up amongst them former Tory MPs. Uh, Dominic Grieve, the former former Attorney General, talked about the, the, the Chatham by-election result by saying they were they are a more sophisticated electorate in, in that part of in that part of England, which was it was a very kind of subtle snobbery towards the, the voters of say Hartlepool. Um, you, you had a, a left-wing DJ who 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 described as who described working class voters as, as thick. Uh, and just before the the Hartlepool by-election, so th this is being expressed every day, and and it's just become a, a deeply insidious part of our our politics, and I, I worry we become two different tribes almost who 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 refuse to kind of listen to each other, and that 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 snobbery is chipping away at the solidarity which is important for a democratic society to function properly. Yeah, and one of the things you mentioned in the book is that. Obviously, um, things like racism and various other isms are, are real problems, and we wouldn't diminish that. But we talk about diversity in quite a narrow way in some respects. And, and you point out that actually people from working class backgrounds are really underrepresented in not just in sort of professional jobs, but culture as well, which I think kind of feeds through to the way people perceive things. And do you want to just talk about that a bit? Absolutely. That, that, is, that is really important. Right across society, right across every element of society which is influenced about how we live, how we're perceived, people from working class backgrounds are severely underrepresented. Um, almost 90% of MPs are graduates, for example. But also in cultural industries, all the way from like the new wave of the 1950s, all the way for several decades, was about the growth of working class representation in culture uh, and 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 working people being writing comedies writing plays um creating music 
and creating the cultural environment which almost embodied us as a nation for decades. And now that's in reverse. Um, the You've got about, I think there was some research which said that in several major cultural industries, only 12% of people come from working class backgrounds. And, and you see that in the way comedy, for example, particularly um, satire is written, which, which has gone from like, written by working class people and, and, and laughing at snobs to being written by snobs and punching down. Think about the news quiz, think about the Daily Mash. The, the, the number of times they take the mick out of working class Brexit voters. Um, and it, it's the, the, the writer or the producer of, um, of Dead Ringers said that comedy writers at, at, at the BBC generally regarded patriotism as, as, as something which was not to be encouraged. Um, so there's a, there's a very distinctive worldview which looks down at working class people and working class Brexit voters in particular. Uh, and that's partially because working people aren't represented in these industries. These industries are very much graduate professions now in, in a way that newspapers, for example, weren't several decades ago when people used to start on their local paper. Um, which is why I think the, the, the new director general has described the BBC as having a southern bias and a metropolitan bias, and they've accepted this as a problem. And which is why, for example, I think the BBC and probably most of the media missed the Brexit vote because they were surrounded by people who 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 didn't have the that that worldview. There's a very kind of modest worldview within several of our cultural industries. And also why I think that over-indexed on things like Change UK and the second referendum and under-indexed the real anger there was in working class communities that they were being told to think again but by, by the, the people who perceived them as their betters. Uh, so, so if cultural industries aren't representative of the people, then, then that's going to widen the gap b b b between kind of graduate elites and the rest. Which is why, if you look at the people who don't think the BBC represents people like them, then then working class, the, the working class people percentage say that as much higher than say middle class graduates. And I say this as someone who loves the BBC, think it's a really important national institution, but our culture needs to be much more representative of the nation than it is at the moment. And similarly, you talked about diversity. I, I think, frankly, we've seen today with some of the, the, the vile responses uh, on social media to, to England's uh, defeat in, in the European Championships, that we do have much more work to do to eradicate racism in society. And we, we, we do have to make society a fairer place without ignoring the progress that's been made. But we cannot ignore socioeconomic factors when we talk about diversity. And in many cases, they are ignored. Uh, the, the, or, or, they're, or they're treated as, a, as an interesting sideshow. And many of the barriers that prevent people from, from getting by, getting ahead, moving, moving forward, are socioeconomic barriers. And just, we can't forget them. And, and issues like class have been ignored in this conversation for too long. Partially because it's quite easy to virtue signal if you're, if you're a middle-class graduate in, in certain professions, when it doesn't involve any self-sacrifice, but talking about class or economic barriers talks about self-sacrifice in a much greater way, I think. Yeah, I mean, I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but I mean, I think we should get into what you mean when you talk about um, the working class in this country, or that Labour always uses this phrase, which is working people, which always kind of sounds a bit nebulous to me. But I mean, 
are we just talking are we talking about certain professions are we talking about an income level or is i think is there more to it it's about a kind of culture of uh manufacturing and the things that span off that working men's clubs trade unions various kind of educational institutions it's a whole you can't just boil it down to income can you no, I, I think there's, there's several different ways of answering that question. So I might try from two different angles, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I'm not going to babble on about the Marxist definition of class, don't worry. But it's uh, the, uh, uh, I think one way of defining it in terms of a societal divide is whether someone is, is a graduate or not um, and the type of employment they are in. Um, and we, we ne- we, we've had a society, frankly, where decisions have been made in the interest of graduates. and non-graduates have been ignored for way too long uh, but I think the second element you talked about which is community and culture and and th- those kind of intermediate institutions are really important when you talk about this as well and that is something which has been really lost um, w- w- when I think about what grew up around around the steelworks in concert there were f- football clubs and cricket clubs and at all kinds of social clubs and things, and the the, the sense of community and, and pride about being from a place that made things, being from a, a town that made the, the the steel for the nuclear submarines, etc. I worry that that sense of belonging and pride is, is gradually dwindling, and that came with having having jobs that people could be proud of, and it's quite I think places like Taiwan and South Korea have proven that it's quite possible for an, an advanced society to reindustrialize, And it's now something people on all sides of America are talking about. So we have to think about how we can create working class jobs that are skilled, that are valued, that are well paid and come with those institutions that go around it. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come on to some of the solutions that you advocate in your, your sort of 10 point plan um, at the end. Um, one of the things you touched on just there is that um, in the book is uh, that we have this kind of getting out mentality now where it's yeah. seen as, um, do you want to just describe that? So it's it's sort of it's seen as social mobility is you need to escape and get to London or Manchester or Birmingham or something. And that's yeah. I think that's right. And we've defined this for decades. And frankly, that's because people have had to do this there's two elements of the discussion the first element is the meritocratic discussion the which um which various authors have talked about over the past few years that this concept that if people succeed they succeed purely based on their own merit and the flip side of that is a lot of people who have succeeded regard of people who haven't succeeded as not having succeeded because they don't have the talent as opposed to the, ob- the fact they've had obstacles placed in their way. And I think that's partially helped create this divide. And the twin of that is social mobility. Uh, so we've had we've had governments of all parties obsessed with social mobility for, for decades, and it's, it is really important. It is really important that talented people are able to get by and make the most of their, make the most of their talents. But for decades, we've also had social mobility being seen as, frankly, a a clever the, the cleverest few percentage from working class towns should leave those towns as you say to go to london go to manchester go to leeds and work in professional jobs because we haven't thought enough about how we can make sure that those professional high skill good jobs can also be created in towns as well so so that we're, that that people from those towns 
there wasn't the brain there isn't a brain drain effect instead people stay in their towns and kind of help build them up uh, which you see more in places like germany than you than you see in the uk and of course london and manchester are always going to be important metropolitan hubs but we also have to show ambition for having good jobs in towns as well so so social mobility needs to be a kind of two-way thing where, where we talk where we continue talking about social mobility but it doesn't always have to be associated with geographic mobility what's your view of the way that um you know something we've talked about a lot in the last 18 months is the way that um the nature of work is changing because people can work pretty much anywhere now i mean how do you see that in terms of changing the economic geography of this country i think that to be honest the, the whole covid thing has shone a light on, on, on this economic divide because the majority of people in elementary professions can't work from home. Uh, the, the majority of people in professional occupations can work from home, uh, we, we, which means that people who work in lower paid occupations are much more exposed to the risk of COVID, both in terms of the health risk and the economic risk. Super, we, 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 we've heard a lot about the heroism of the NHS workers, and rightly so, but also the people who've kept the economy going by delivering things by keeping supermarkets open uh, and the health risks of supermarket workers are considerably greater than than professional workers and i i, I think we we've now seen almost a part of the economy which people didn't think about before and we've seen a lot of people who are not having dignity at work and dignity in their jobs and and one thing i think that might come out of covid is we think a little bit more about how people can have dignified jobs. And there are some jobs which can never be done at home. You can't be a security guard at home. You can't work in a hospital at home. You can't work in a supermarket at home. So yes, um, technology has meant this pandemic would have been very different than it say happened 30 years ago. We're, we're talking to each other on, on, on Zoom. But technology can never be so advanced that those elementary jobs will not have to, will not have to remain in place. So we have to think about how every job can bring with it dignity and worth. I just wonder as well, I mean, we talk, we'll talk a bit about manufacturing, but there's a sort of view in some kind of policy wonks that for some towns, maybe the best thing for them to aim to be is just a nice place to live rather than necessarily. I mean, I wonder what you, what you think about that, because not every town can be a, a concert, say, with a, you know, a big a single industrial employer. Um, is there a case that in, in, in an economy where some people are more mobile and can, and can work from home or whatever, then certain places are going to kind of try and sell themselves on that on the basis of just of being somewhere that uh, this kind of, I don't know what you might call it, like knowledge workers could move there? I think being, being a nice place to live is important for every town, and it's not something we've thought enough about. We haven't thought about how the high street, for example, can be not just great places to shop, but a great place for people to come together, great place for community facilities. We, we spent decades building out out of town business centers, for example. Uh, we, we, we kind of scattered community facilities around. So, so families and people don't regard a town center anymore as a, as a place to be a, a place to socialize, um, a place to spend community time in a way that they do more in places like France. Uh, so I, I think we need to 
think a little bit more, and, and, and Rachel Wolf and James Frayne have been very stiff about this, about just making places nicer. But that shouldn't stop places also having an economic ambition too, to, to make sure that they're nice places, but also with good, high-skilled, decent jobs that people can be proud of. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely something, I mean, where I live, the high street is basically completely empty after 6 p.m. And it's an extremely yeah. busy and popular. And that's a really weird, it's a weird kind of slightly unsettling, um, you know, phenomenon. Um, so, I mean, in terms of, I think the, the book's very kind of, I think it's very acute on the kind of diagnosis of what's gone on. Um, obviously, you know, we're a kind of economically liberal website, so we might differ a bit on, on what the next um, sort of, the net the solutions are and what would you say are this government's kind of what should they be doing to address the sorts of problems you talk about um some some i think are more intractable than others i mean some involve basically reshaping the whole british economy others are more to do with things like um representation um stuff like that i mean at the moment we have this leveling up agenda which sounds it seems to me to more be a slogan than a policy agenda I just wonder what, what kind of flesh should they be putting on the bones, in your view? Uh, I think it's tremendous. Uh, my friend and old colleague, Neil O'Brien, is, is now in charge of the levelling up agenda. And if anyone is going gonna, is gonna to drive it to a really concrete and important place, it, 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 it's going to be Neil. Uh, and I think it's, it's really important that levelling up is a central part of the government's agenda. And we should never forget, talk about levelling up was one of the major reasons the Tories were able to win. Uh, an 80 seat majority in in 2019 and frankly if if they want to make realignment permanent then they need to deliver on the talk because because people in people in northern towns have been promised change for quite a while and politicians haven't delivered uh, and it is still a vote lent and it, it, if if this realignment is to become permanent then change needs to become visible and tangible and within pay packers within jobs and as as we mentioned before just in in the in the aesthetic quality of a high street as well just places should be visibly nicer places to live um so i, I think that there's two elements to it what one there there is something that central government can do in in tandem with 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 the devolved lo local authorities which is to make sure these places have the right and the best infrastructure. We, we, we poured infrastructure funding into London and the Southeast for a long time. And you, you still have in the Northeast, it's really expensive buses, for example, um, slightly higgle, higgledy piggledy at, at the is the best way of putting parts of the Northern Railway Network. Um, the, the amount of time it gets to say from Newcastle to Manchester is an absolute scandal. So, so, so the fact that the government is talking about having this infrastructure, not just physical, but also digital infrastructure. Um, when, when a business is looking at where to set up, whether it's a big industrial giant or whether it's a startup, the, the, the speed of things like broadband is really important. Uh, so so, so making, making sure that kind of infrastructure is in place. I, I, and also having an ambition that these places can build on their industrial past, the, uh, the engineering past, the legacy which is there. So having a think about an industrial policy, which, which isn't the failed 1970s form of industrial policy, 
in the UK, where we, where we frankly chased after losers. Um, but we, we do what places like Taiwan and South Korea and to an extent Singapore did, which is really have a market-focused industrial policy based on market signals and, and say, where, where, is the, where is the next big trend and how can we get ahead of this? Uh, and then government can use its, its convening power in terms of land, in terms of resources, to to attract businesses and to help businesses grow in certain in certain sectors, but also make sure there's fierce competition within those sectors within the country. And if you look, for example, at the success of Taiwan, Taiwanese industrial policy, semiconductors are the absolute core of 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 the, the future of tech in many ways. And Taiwan is the global leader of of semiconductor production because the government several years ago, decided to, to focus its resources on making Taiwan a global leader in semiconductor production. Uh, and, and now Taiwan is even more important in geopolitics than it ordinarily would be because of semiconductors. Uh, and, and that just shows, and if you look at how South Korea is, is still such a, an important industrial economy, that, that's because it was a very forward-looking, very market-focused industrial policy. And something which really embraced innovation as well, which is something we need to do. The 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 the, the post-industrial towns are absolute, traditionally absolute, um, real focus in innovation. Uh, for example, uh, the uh, an example of invention I, I like to use is, is is when the inventor of the windscreen wiper was caught in a snowstorm on the way back from a football match. Uh, and then he, he invented he invented the windscreen wiper, uh, and I think he he was for, for his sins a Newcastle fan, um, and, and 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 just making sure that invention and innovation is a part of this, and and government protects early stage invention and innovation, and making sure that feeds into an industrial policy, which really builds up the the. The, these indoor areas which have been forgotten about for way too long and uh, with the aim of creating millions of new manufacturing jobs which are skilled which are high status which are well paid but also accepting that there will be some jobs that we, we, there will always be a need for elementary jobs and these these jobs need to be dignified and also well paid and also coming with economic security as well I'll follow up on that in a sec. I just want to get back to you were talking about uh, the leveling up gender at the beginning there and infrastructure. I mean, that kind of thing takes quite a lot of time. So I'm just wondering, politically, how much leeway do you think the Conservatives have with the voters who have, in your words, lent them their vote? Are they prepared to say, look, OK, we get this isn't going to happen overnight. Um, we're very unlikely to vote Labour because they've kind of abandoned us. Um, yeah. And also, another thing I think that's important to know uh, that often gets lost in this discourse is that people think of the red wall and they think, oh, it's all kind of leave voters, that there's a, an impression that maybe it's, it's people who are poor or whatever. But a lot of these voters are kind of classic Tory voters. They're homeowners. They're not necessarily, like you said in the book, they're not necessarily living on the breadline. And it's quite patronising to describe them in those ways. So, I mean, basically, what, what is the kind of mentality, what do you think is the mentality towards the Tories of voters in, in seats like Hartlepool? I think the voters are well prepared to give the Tories a chance and they want to see 
progress. People don't don't expect to see utter economic transformation in in, in the next between now and 2020. When is it next? 2024, 2023. But they expect to see movement towards it. Um, they, they, they expect to see that some kind of tangible difference in their hometowns, particularly, as you say, in the high street. There, there, there are things they can do with transport in terms of much better bus services um, while, while new train lines. And, and something I think is really great is that the Grand Shafts is talking about reversing the beaching cuts. Um, and, and much, much though I, I'm a fan of many things that Harold Macmillan did, I think beaching has to go down as one of the great stains in so the, um, the local, lots of local railways, lo lo local, for, local train yeah. lines, indeed, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think people expect to see progress, and quite importantly, people expect expect to see a difference in their pay packets as well. Uh, I, I think one of the major things I touched on in the book is that the past almost two decades now have been characterised by stagnation in 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 median incomes. At the same time as the stock market has surged and executive salaries have surged, and so we, we've seen median incomes stagnating, and we've seen a, a lack of investment in workforce in terms of training as well. So I, I think people expect to see some a trajectory of improvement, and people will also expect to see improvement in their pay packets as well, but uh, between now and the next election, which is why I've said that. Improved median income should should be one of the the core economic uh, factors that the government looks at. Sure, I think your sort of pr prospectus is extremely ambitious in the sense that you're talking about millions of manufacturing jobs in an economy which is only what, ten percent manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, one is how how realistic do you think that is? What sort of time frame do you see it over? And what are the policies you think that could help stimulate that? So from our point of view, for example, we would love to see more, uh, just it made easier to start and run a business um, in terms yeah. of taxation, in terms of hiring people uh, and, and all the good things that flow from that. Um, I just wonder what your sort of take on that is. Yeah, I, I don't think we're going to have millions of manufacturing jobs within the next year. But I, I think having an ambition to get there and to be be close to it within a decade is realistic. And I, I totally agree with some of the prescriptions that you come up with, which is that we should make it easy to set up a business, but also really encourage investment and, and, and encourage manufacturing businesses to set up and invest here, uh, encourage, and I think the Chancellor has made a good step in this direction, really with full expense. Yeah, with full expense. Yeah, yeah. Re re really do as much as possible to encourage investment in machinery and workers through the tax system. Uh, really encourage kind of long-term investment, and also make making sure government is doing all it can, all it all it can, to put us at the very forefront of the new technology of the new industries, and that that's got to be a very market-based way of looking at it, and and it, even organisations like the the OECD and, and the World Bank are now, are now saying that the success of the Asian Tigers is partially to do with a, a very market-focused industrial policy. Uh, but yes, part of this has to be making places very good places to set up a business and to invest. And maybe some in, in some of these post-industrial areas, there, there, there needs to be what I've called in the previous book, innovation hubs, where, where, where they could go with much lower corporation tax for a while.
or, or, or they, they could do whatever it takes to encourage business to invest. Because frankly, it's not the public sector that's going to create millions of manufacturing jobs. It's not the public sector which is going to create vibrant econ local economies which has been missing. It's the private sector. And, and we, we, we need to ensure that these areas uh, move on from being seen as economically stagnant to being seen as good economic places to invest, to set up a business, to move a business to, and to grow a business. And, and something Michael Heseltine talked about in the 80s he, he, he talked about, he went around talks to us after the, after the riots and said that this should be a great place, not just for businesses to invest, but also young people should want to, young people who've left should want to come back because it's seen as vibrant, it's seen as dynamic. And I think that is the approach we need to take. Yes, there needs to be an enabling role for the state, but the, the state needs to be an, enabling the private sector to drive growth. And what sort of manufacturing do you envisage it being? I mean, what is Britain going to make that the rest of the world wants to buy? I think we, we, we've already seen, for example, a, a big growth in things like electric car batteries. Uh, we, we've seen Nissan announcing they're, they're not closing their factory, they're expanding their factory, despite the, the profits of doom around the, the Brexit referendum. And and the, the, North, the North is be, becoming a bit of a hub for production of electric car batteries. And, and that is the kind of thing which is getting ahead of the trend, thinking about what the next industries will be, They're doing what Taiwan did with semiconductors. And I think semiconductors is a great example of the kind of semiconductors which are going to empower the next generation of smartphones, for example. Um, and how do we marry this with the net zero agenda, which is something obviously the electric car um, production is an important part of. Uh, but, but considering those signals and considering those trajectories is important. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I've got all the answers about the way the world's going to look in 10 years time. But thinking seriously about that, as opposed to chasing after loss making companies, which was what we did in the 70s, um, is the right way of doing that. Yeah, I think trying to predict the labor market's difficult, um, as Gordon Brown probably found out. In your in the book, you say that uh, by by this year there are supposed to be six hundred thousand unskilled jobs in the British economy, and there are yes million, I think. There, there, there are the number has the number has increased, and increased and well. Gordon Sorry. Brown, yeah. and, and and Gordon Brown made that very bold bold statement that everyone was going to have this kind of skilled knowledge job by 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 a few years ago, and it just hasn't happened. Yeah, because we new Labour didn't really think think about this kind of thing until the financial crash. But there's this kind of glib thing that you hear a bit sometimes, which is whenever any someone's laid off or a factory closes, and people go, "Oh, you know, they'll just learn to code," as if it's uh, something that anyone can. I don't know if you've read a book called Janesville, which is about I have the M yeah, battery. But that was really interesting about how it's it's really hard for people. Who haven't been to school for 25 years to suddenly go back yeah. into the classroom and and um and you know learn new skills like that um anyway i th you no. mentioned um net zero there i wonder i think this is probably one of the i think this is one of the biggest risks to the government in the next five or ten years is that the costs of implementing some of that agenda are going to dawn on people and they're going to hit people in ways they haven't been expecting i think uh, I just wonder what you think, how that kind of marries with this other levelling up agenda. If you're then saying to people, you know, 
we're going to focus on you, but also you've got to change your boiler, you've got to change your car, you've got to sell your old petrol car. I mean, that's pretty difficult stuff. Yeah, of course. And we, we have to make this as easy as possible to do and as cost efficient as possible to do. Uh, just burdening costs on already kind of struggling taxpayers is not the way of doing it. And, and the element of net zero I'm interested in is how we can put ourselves at the very forefront of the green industrial revolution. Um, how, how we can ensure that we are at the cutting edge of the industries that will matter in five or 10 years time. Um, as opposed to kind of forcing people to change their boiler and this kind of thing. And I've, I've already talked about how incomes have been stagnating for the best part of two decades now. And do, uh, I, I think, I think for, forcing increasing costs on people would be a mistake. And we just have to make any, any changes as easy as possible and as cost effective as possible for people. And yeah, there, there, there is a risk that if, if we're seen as forcing people to do things that is putting a massive dent in their income, then of course people won't be happy. Uh, so so the, the government does have a role in making these things easy. I think just to, um, for a final bit, I, we haven't actually spoken about education very much, which is um, sort of ties together a lot of the topics we've been um, talking about, um, including meritocracy, actually, was one of the things you, you mentioned earlier. Um, I wonder how well you think Things are going on on moving a bit more towards having parity between vocational and academic types of education because you talk about um you've talked about germany for example where it's much much more even between yeah. doing skilled jobs and academic jobs and you see people in big companies in germany executives who've gone down technical that technical yeah. route but we're miles off that here i'd say at the moment and and also members of Merkel's cabinet have, have got vocational qualifications. And I think you will have genuine parity between vocational and academic education when senior politicians are happy for their children to go to a technical route as opposed to an academic route when they turn 18. And I'm not sure where they're yet, but I'm pleased that the government is now talking about having this parity. I think like things like T levels and, and modern apprenticeships are really important. But we, we, we've seen, frankly, underinvestment in technical education for decades now. And we've seen resources poured into universities. And you, you're having a certain percentage of people graduating from universities who are finding their skills are, are not equating to the boost in the job market they were expecting. And you're, you also have lots of jobs that were non-graduate jobs now have a graduate um, attachment to them, which is just unnecessary. And, and that the, the kind of obsession with higher education is also an important element of this new snobbery. So I, I think it's really important to talk about how we can have a vocational, a technical stream, which is taken as seriously by employers and taken as seriously by by the public. Because if you look at public polling, people like the idea of technical education. But still think it's people who fail their exams. Still think for people it's people who don't can't get by an academic education. And we have to change that. But by by making technical education so appealing and so high class that it becomes a desirable thing to do. And and, and frankly, the the kind of new manufacturing jobs I'm talking about, the high skill manufacturing jobs I'm talking about need the kind of skills that technical and vocational education will produce. 
so really shifting that balance towards investing in investing in further education colleges having proper tie-ups be between uh, vocational bodies and employers for example could we work with nissan and have an uh, a vocational institute for advanced engineering in sunderland for example um could we think about this much more clearly H how can we think about incorporating this into the school system so at the age of 13 or 14 when a lot of people are frankly becoming disengaged from education why don't we allow some kind of vocational stream to build in there, where, where, where as they do in Germany, pe people have time with employers and really build their employability skills as well, as opposed to trying to push everybody by the, down the academic route and, and, and having a certain generation of disengaged, disenchanted people, which is, which is bad for the population, bad for the economy and bad for society. So, so yes, we, we do need to further push towards the, the, the vocational and technical route. And I'm pleased the government is talking about it, but I just think we have to push even harder and be even more ambitious about what that remaking of education might look like. Isn't one of the conclusions that's unspoken from that, uh, you probably wouldn't hear a politician say it, but that we actually need fewer students, fewer, maybe fewer oh, yeah. university courses, because this 50% yeah. target has been a kind of yoke around our necks since the Blair years. Um, Absolutely. And as you it's, say, it's, you're not getting value for money. Like, yeah, I, I, I love to, a lot of graduates are not getting value for money, particularly now you're seeing universities talking about doing courses permanently via Zoom or, 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 or via distance learning, which just seems to remove a lot of the importance of it uh, so yeah I, I do think you do need this shift from academic to vocational but again this isn't going to come cheap uh, high, high quality vocational uh, teaching comes with comes with the cost of equipment the cost of good facilities the cost of good teaching um, which I think the government needs to drive and and this utterly random 50% target is, is, is just seemingly unnecessary when it's not working for so many young people yeah i think originally the blair target was meant to be for kind of further and higher but it basically everyone yeah. thinks it's just university and actually you could you could have a percentage target but it's just a, it's more to do with the mix yeah, a indeed. lot of people doing humanities degrees and, and so on that don't necessarily i'm a humanities graduate like nothing i learned in my degree has helped me in my career particularly um so it's a kind of case of of, of sort of redoing the, the mix, if you like. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I, I'm not normally a fan of like slightly spurious targets, uh, but I do think it's important that as many young people as possible have the kind of education which will allow them to make the most of their, their potential. And that means high quality vocational education as well as high quality academic education. And one should not look down on the other. Do we have the resources to provide that kind of? I mean, are there enough people who, are, who have those skills to teach them? Do you think, on the scale that we're talking about? I think there are, uh, but we, we we haven't really properly done a kind of a, a full analysis of this. And obviously, one of the issues we've had for generations is a is a, is a lack of STEM graduates, as we, as we 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 talk we, we call them. But Yes, indeed, but it's it's not going to be easy. It's not going to come cheap, which is why it needs a real focus from government to make it happen. Sure, I think uh, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap. Is um, 
a nice motif on which to uh, <laughs> to end the podcast. <laughs> plenty, plenty to do, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of um, similar debates in the coming years. Um, David, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, David's book, The New Snobbery, is out now. Uh, I would recommend giving it a read. It's a very briskly written, kind of crisp read, and um, something for everyone to, you know, something thought-provoking for everyone in there. So thanks very much, David. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. No worries. Take care.